our guest this hour, who is probably one of the most financially astute people in the business. He's articulate. He knows what he's talking about. He writes in thecorbettreport.com. James Corbett comes to us today, as he does every other Monday, and we're so grateful to have him join us today. Thank you, James, for joining us in the Power Hour today. Well, thank you for that ridiculously generous introduction. I I only hope I can live (laughs) up to it. (laughs) Oh, I know you can. That was nothing compared to what I should have said about you, that's for sure. Um, We're looking at Russia, Ukraine, and the United States, and trying to figure out who's telling the truth about who's got guys on the border and how bad is it and how can you read zero hedges little grainy pictures of that trust us those are are uh, tanks down there uh, what are you getting what's your feeling about the russia ukraine u.s situation at this point it is a quagmire i don't think that there's any side that you can come down on that won't be uh, steeped in bull doo-doo and uh, i i just don't think there's a way to keep your hands clean when when wading through this so it is a there is a lot of back and forth propaganda and shots being fired uh in the propaganda war and unfortunately it's looking more and more like a, a, you know at any given moment some incident could trigger the, uh, the the shots being fired in a more literal sense and in fact we just have the latest out um a mayor of an East Ukrainian city, a pro-Russian mayor, has just been shot and wounded uh, there in eastern Ukraine. So it is a very dangerous situation, and we really are on a knife edge of some sort right now. And it's the type of thing where I'm not really convinced. I mean, I, I certainly do subscribe to the idea that a lot of these types of conflicts are kind of stage-managed to a certain extent, and that that generally speaking, the, uh, the, the powers that shouldn't be like to use these situations as ways of, of basically hyping up tensions and and uh, and making uh, making hay with their 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 military contracts but but in these types of situations there's always the possibility that some hothead will actually fire a shot that will be heard around the world and that will start some sort of hot war scenario and uh, you you just can't really keep the lid on it once that that process starts and it's significant that here we are 100 years uh, exactly 100 years after the start of World War one because of uh, an incident that no one saw and no one could have predicted and no one would have thought would have started the uh, the, the the hot war in, in Europe and suddenly now here we are in a, in a similar situation where who knows what kind of incident will set off you know the the next world war and that's obviously what we're not hoping for but uh, but it it does at least remain as a possibility right now so it's definitely what I'm keeping my eye on and I'm trying not to uh, to get too caught up in the the rhetoric or propaganda coming up from either side of this conflict. It's interesting because, as they were saying, uh, gee, Russia won't take our phone calls any longer. I thought that was just the most pathetic story to put out. You know, and, and of course, they had to add the caveat, we're calling Russia because we want them to uh, back off. We're just trying to stabilize the situation, and we can't even get through to them to stabilize the situation. When in reality, Russia is probably saying, you know, I mean, I, w- let me ask you. I'm no diplomat, like I said earlier, but if Russia would not take your phone calls as the president of the United States, would you go and tell all the American people about that, James? Well, that's a very good point. No, no, I would not. I would, uh, I would probably not want to be portrayed, portraying myself as as the the snubby in that that kind of case. Um, no, it is it is ridiculous, and it, it certainly does play into to the propaganda that's being propagated right now. And uh, I, again, I don't really take it for anything more than what it's worth, which is 
which is nothing really. Um, I take it with it, not just a grain of salt, but an, but a mountain of salt. And, uh, and, and again, there's, I mean, this kind of back and forth is happening on a daily basis now. So I, I think that this is part of the the kind of big buildup of the meta narrative that's going on right now that they just want us to buy into, you know, the new Cold War scenario. And obviously this is front and center of of the news right now and has been for several several weeks if not months. So uh so I think they're they're probably accomplishing that task to a large extent by now. But uh, again, I just don't take those types of uh, reports for for anything but what they're worth, which is not much at all. Well, we're being told, though, that the ruble and the uh, uh, the financial sector in Russia has been hurt by about 20%. And the question is, you know, first of all, it's not fair to do that to the Russian people because they're not the ones behind this, I would think. But what is the truth about how bad our sanctions are hurting Russia? Do you know? To this, at this point, it's difficult to extract what these sanctions are doing from what was already going on in the Russian economy. It was already slowing down, and there was already signs it was heading into recession. So, if anything, this might have exacerbated that problem, but it was an already ongoing problem. At this point, so far, I think the sanctions have not been very crippling for the for the overall Russian economy, but uh, they're starting to try to tighten the, the net even further, and they're floating the, uh, the idea right now that they're going to start... Um, cracking down on Gazprom and Rosneft. So we'll have to see in what form the, these new this new round of sanctions actually does implement uh, those restrictions and see if that, that starts to affect the, the economy proper. But I, I would say that this is part of a downward trend that Russia the Russian economy was on anyway. So in, to a certain extent, I mean, uh, who knows to, to what extent the Russians have been calculating all of this, but perhaps, I mean, knowing that they're going into economic troubles anyway and knowing they're not going to be able to take on you know, the NATO powers without suffering some economic uh, uh, problems, uh, you know, wh- however they do it. I think this might be just a, a, a type of calculated loss. Well, we're, we're going to take a hit anyway. We might as well take it while we're already going down and uh, and hopefully on, on the backswing, we'll be able to, to rise above what's, what's going on right now. So I, it might be that type of calculation going on. Again, I don't have access to, to what's going on in the deliberations in the Kremlin right now, but, but certainly I think they're, they're expecting it to get even even tighter from here. And uh, and you're exactly right, of course, with all sanctions at all times, it's always the people who suffer from them. I mean, they're, they're giving lip service to, oh, this is targeting, you know, Putin's Putin's inner circle and what have you. But uh, but ultimately, when it starts affecting the, the companies that provide the livelihoods for the average working Russian, you're going to start to get to the point where this really does affect the, the people. And again, we just have to hearken back to that famous quote from Madeleine Albright on 60 Minutes back in the 1990s, the, uh, the, the, when they were calculating that the sanctions in Iraq had probably killed half a million Iraqis. Um, is that, ha, ha, sorry, half a million Iraqi children. Uh, is that mm-hmm. worth it? And Madeleine Albright said, yes, well, it's a hard decision to make, but I think it's worth it. So these are uh, people, these are cold-blooded psychopaths who have no remorse about killing half a million children in order to accomplish their geopolitical aims. And uh, it's very much the same people, if not you know, necessarily at Madeleine Albright, but so, so very much the same type of person who's still in the positions of power right now, and uh, we'd be naive to think otherwise. Yeah, I just want to say that we covered a story. The research that Alternet did on this story is just phenomenal. It's about a 16-page story, but it's 35 countries where the U.S. has supported fascists, drug lords, and terrorists. In every one of these countries, from, you know, Chile to Afghanistan to Brazil and Colombia and and, uh, Cambodia, you, you read this research and you realize, oh my gosh, 
Everything we've ever done, Haiti, whatever, we had a reason for going in there, and it had nothing to do with human rights. It had nothing to do with saving lives or freedom. And so now we have to wonder, what is the end game now with Russia? Why would we be willing to go and poke the giant in the eye, or the only giant equal to us, in the eye with a stick? Why would we even want to do this at this point? What, what do we have to gain by going over in their territory and their part of the world and saying, excuse me, you know, we're here with our troops and our ships and our airplanes? You know, to be honest, if there is a propaganda narrative that they're trying to put out there um, at this point re- with regards to what they're actually attempting to accomplish in Ukraine, I, I I, still haven't really heard it articulated in a way that makes sense to me because obviously this has nothing whatsoever to do with the average, you know, average working working man or woman in Iowa or Louisiana or somewhere like that. What, what on earth do they care about this patch of land on the other side of the planet that, you know, Russia it may, be, may or may not be invading or, or whatever it is, why on earth does this matter to the average American? Why are they involved in this at all? Um, I, that really hasn't been explained in any way that makes sense to me, um, other than just, a, you know, this is the new big bad boogeyman, and and Americans, unfortunately, have, have come to, well, if not accept, at least been they've been told so many times over the past half century that they're the policemen of the world, that I think a lot of them are starting to believe it. Um, hopefully more people are snapping out of that, and that's what I really hope the lesson of the, uh, the Syrian fall flag last year trying to get whip the uh, public back into a wartime frenzy to go and invade Syria on the pretext of the chemical weapons attack which actually came from the rebels not from the government but uh, but uh, there was a huge wave of protest about that and I, I really think that 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 is a type of turning point in this whole um, the game that that's been played in American foreign policy for a very long time now where I think people are starting to realize you know this really does doesn't have anything to do with us and it's not even one of those you know oh, let's invade Afghanistan to get Al-Qaeda, wink, wink, and meanwhile the good old boys will profit from the oil or something like that, whatever narrative they tried to feed people at the time. Um, I don't think people are even buying into that 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 frame at this point. It's really about nothing whatsoever other than protecting the uh, the, the NATO interests and, of course, the, the military contractors' uh, interests that, that underlie that. I don't think anyone's buying anything else at this point. Um, I, don't, I think you're right. And when you think about it, You know, we have tried to go against Syria, Somalia, Pakistan, Afghanistan, Iraq, Iran. There's a few that I've probably forgotten about. I mean, how many other countries are at war with that many countries? When are we going to see what's happening here? We'll be back with James, uh, our guest, after this three-minute break. Welcome back to Power Hour. Thanks for joining us 24 minutes after the hour. In the next hour, we're going to be talking to Field McConnell regarding the Flight 370. And, of course, there's breaking news from CNN. They have not found the plane yet, and they do not plan on finding any debris. Don't you love that? We will not find any debris, we know at this point. Really? They're pretty good, aren't they? Anyway, that's the latest on the MH370. Um But we're talking with James Corbett today on the financial situation around the world, as well as everything else. Whatever his thoughts are, we're interested in because he has such a broad range of information. And you can go to thecorbettreport.com, corbettreport.com, C-O-R-B-E-T-T, report.com. And and he also writes for internationalforecaster.com. And uh, James, I'm wondering about uh, Mr. Obama's visit to Japan last week. If what you, what you think about that, uh, either economically or militarily? 
Well, it was it was actually an interesting. Well, it is an interesting trip. In fact, Obama's, I believe, on a four country tour that I think is just winding up now in Malaysia. So uh, he's been making the rounds here in East Asia. And I think it's extremely interesting, this trip, because I think this was really intended as a type of victory lap for the TPP, which was supposed to be signed by now, the Trans-Pacific Partnership Agreement, uh, the the big free trade deal of the Asia-Pacific region that was really supposed to be signed and done and dusted and, and in the can by now. But it it isn't. And uh, one of the main holdouts really is Japan and uh, the, the J- Japanese reticence to open up their, their agricultural markets for foreign products, which is part of just J- Japanese isolationism. And we have the prime minister here playing to the kind of nationalist crowd saying, you know, don't worry, we won't let the, uh, the outside forces in to the agricultural sector here. So he's playing to his home base with that. And so so ultimately, I think this 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 trip with Ob- Obama became a trip without any real purpose. I mean, there's there's really nothing that's happening on this trip that couldn't have happened in in just uh, in, in negotiations from from Washington. Um, so so it's kind of uh, they're just trying to pull something out of the hat to try to make it look like this is actually an important trip to be on at the moment. So one of the things that came out of this um, in terms of his meeting in Japan was that he was talking to Prime Minister Abe and basically made some vague comments about how the U.S. is there to support Japan in its territorial disputes in the East China Sea against China, which is taken you know, basically as a type of PR win for Abe and his ultra-nationalist, ultra-militarist kind of uh, policy that he's trying to to build right now with the big PR campaign that's going on here to try to make the uh, Japanese self-defense forces, quote-unquote, into, you know, uh, an acceptable military, basically. Because it is a military in all but name. And uh, I think they're just trying to prepare the Japanese public for the changeover that's going to happen in the coming decade or two. And, uh, And I think this is a big part of that. Oh, look, the U.S. is supporting us. They're, they, you know, they're behind us 100%, so we can continue mm-hmm. going full speed ahead. So that was really what came out of the Japanese visit. Um, and thankfully, no process progress on the TPP, because ultimately, I, I think it is going to be absolutely atrocious if and when it is signed. So I'm, I'm glad to see that there is some sort of roadblock towards that. But uh, other things that have eventuated from this trip, um, we've just seen, for example, the uh, the Philippines, I believe, has just signed a, uh, a new uh, a deal for 10-year um, U.S. military presence, um, a larger military presence uh, in, in, the, in the Philippines. Um, Malaysia, again, we're seeing just more more of the t- type of rhetoric between those two nations. Um, and it, it's it's really interesting to watch this happening because, again, this is exactly what I've been talking about for, for months and months now. The Asia-Pacific is is kind of the, the, the playground for the military uh, contractors at the moment. And just the latest sign of this, um, the Australian Prime Minister Tony Abbott just announced a $12 billion deal to buy uh, a few dozen F-35 stealth fighters. And what on earth does Australia need with F-35 stealth fighters at the moment? Uh, well, absolutely nothing, unless there's a big bad boogeyman to to blame and to to say, well, we you know we could be in the next World War Three scenario, and hey, look at look and behold what's happening in Eastern Europe, and uh, now with the rise of China, it is creating that perfect pretext. So mm-hmm. mission accomplished That's on right. that front. Well, you know, uh, uh, according to James Weekly and I, James Defense Weekly, which is a British uh, uh, informational, you know, output of 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 who purchases what during a war. I went back and looked two years prior to the Gulf War, and we trebled 
trebled our sales of weapons to everybody around that area. So this works real well. If we start yelling, bad guy, bad guy, uh, going to attack, then everybody wants to go and buy weapons so that they can defend their own country, or at least they say that ostensibly, and uh, everybody gets to make a lot of money off that. Um, So I think that's probably what's happening with Australia. I think you're right on with that. One other thing I wanted to mention is that I think that, you know, it was a little inappropriate of your um, Japanese MP uh, to be dissing our president by saying that he was having marital problems and that's why he was traveling alone and wanting to do a stag trip. Um, <laughs> I didn't I, even I, hear I, that. <laughs> you did? No. You don't, read the National Enquir- you don't read the National Enquirer, do you? No, I don't. Um, anyway, that's what he said. But we did find out that Obama did eat a lot of sushi while he was there, and I, <laughs> I'm kind of for that. We'll be back after this three-minute break with the Power Hour. Stay tuned. Uh, we're speaking today with Mr. James Corbett, probably one of the smartest guys that I've ever met. Uh, certainly one of the smartest in And Japan. he's met a lot of people, too. I know quite yes. a few people. Uh-huh. Uh, but we're speaking about, well, just generally what's happening out there in the crazy world. But, uh, James, what I'd like to know uh, is I've been doing some research into uh, this creation of a secondary IMF by the BRICS countries. Uh, what do you think the economic impacts of that are going to be if that is, in fact, uh, the case? Well, the if is the important part there. You're talking about the BRICS Development Bank that's been touted for a few years now. They've been talking about it. There was a a lot of commotion around last year's BRICS Summit that it was going to be created at that point. And I think they were seeking to capitalize it with $10 billion, um, I think half of which was going to come from China which kind of shows where the, uh, the, 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 the real cloud is. And I think there was some dispute about that, and some people were trying to claim, no, it was going to be $2 billion from each player. Um, basically, uh, it's a, a potentially wonderful idea. Um, certainly, there needs to be some sort of alternative to the IMF World Bank so that uh, the people in the, 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 the rulers or would-be leaders of the, the, the developing world don't have to go cap in hand to the same old criminal gangster banksters to, uh, to try to eke out uh, some sort of subsistence and, of course, come with all of those restrictions and all of those, uh, those um, extra parts that are inserted in those types of deals that we've heard about from the economic hitman John Perkins and others. So it is a, a, it is a potentially great idea. Of course, it always depends on just how does it end up getting done and, uh, and who ends up really pulling the string and what strings are attached. And again, that's still very much an open question because at last year's BRIC Summit, it didn't really actually materialize. They just agreed to agree later, basically. So um, all of the hype kind of fizzled out last year. We'll have to see if it does get created, if it gets capitalized, if it actually starts producing something. Because uh, China, of course, has been very active in Africa for the last decade and has generally done deals that are, are, if not perfectly, you know, wondrous for the the people involved, at least certainly a lot better than the types of deals that generally come at the point of the barrel of a gun from the U.S. or its allies. So it is potentially a wonderful thing that could open up a third third way, another alternative for people to go um, to try to capitalize infrastructure projects in developing countries. Again, we'll have to see what form it takes, but, uh, but it is potentially a good idea. Well, if you had to put a percentage on it, like a, you know, a, a likelihood percentage, what do you think it would be at right now? 
I would have said last year, I would have said that there was a, a very good chance, 50%, 75% of it, of it being formed at that time. Um, since it didn't occur last year, and since that momentum, I think, got taken out of the wind out of the sails, I would say it's lower at this point. I mean, I would be surprised if it came about this year. But I don't know, somewhere in the, in the, in the next five years, I mean, assuming the BRICS really coheres as some sort of political entity, and I think there's a big question mark over that, as really it, it, it was... I mean, for people who don't know, the BRICS actually came from BRIC, which was Brazil, Russia, India, China, which was a concept that was first proposed by a chief economist at Goldman Sachs back in 2000, I believe 2001, he wrote a paper about it. And uh, I guess the the leaders of those countries thought, hey, that's a pretty good idea. And so they actually started a political um, uh, process around that. And then they added South Africa later. And uh, so, I I mean, it's to a certain extent, BRICS is an idea that really isn't a, a real thing in reality it's just something that's kind of been melded together so i don't know if it's even going to cohere through the the coming years especially as china really does start to i think decouple from the uh, the other economies i mean not that they're very much related in any way anyways there's nothing that really underlies these economies that may makes them connected in any way it's just that they all happen to be in in somewhat similar circumstances at the beginning of the last decade and that's why they kind of all got lumped in so uh so i think if the BRICS can cohere i think there's a good chance that they will at least attempt to capitalize this bank maybe it won't be the 10 billion dollars maybe it won't be so important but at any rate i think that this is pretty much one of their prestige projects and i think the 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 future of the BRICS will hang on it okay did we did we lay the foundation for what the BRICS countries are did we say that i hope so brazil russia india china and south africa and uh, again, okay. this is kind of a political slash economic process that's that's really come about in the past decade. And uh, and I, I think there's big cracks and creaks in the armor there. And there's, uh, again, some signs that there, these economies are, are not necessarily all pulling in the same direction. So uh, I, I'm not sure it'll cohere for, for very much longer. Hmm. Um, I was going to say that reminds me of the heaters in my Volkswagen. Just not going to head here for much longer. <laughs> anyway, uh, uh, I wanted to talk about the the Chinese-Russia gas deals. that We'd be hearing a lot about that going on and talking a little bit about uh, China kind of decoupling from some of the other currencies. But it seems like China and Russia are, are really gearing up uh, to provide for their own. Uh, what, are the, what are the economic impacts of that going to be, do you think? Well, actually, this could be the most significant part of the whole Ukraine crisis, depending on how that ends up playing out. I mean, assuming that doesn't go into some sort of war scenario, I think one of the most important things that could happen from this is for Russia to be driven into the arms of China and some of the other Asian nations. And it really makes all sorts of sense from every sort of viewpoint that you could think of, except from the historical geopolitical context of it. Of course, Russia and China had their falling out there in the 1960s and never really got back on 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 track. And, and they've come into a sort of unsteady alliance of sorts or accommodation of sorts in recent years just from their shared opposition to the NATO agenda in places like Libya and Syria. But uh, but I think it's really coming to a head now. And so now there is the, the talk that they're going to sign what's being called the Holy Grail of Gas Deals. As early as next month, Putin is making a state visit to Beijing. And at that time, they're saying they might ink this deal, which has been in the works for years now and makes perfect sense. Russia, the largest gas exporter in the world, China, the largest gas importer, 
border. They're right on each other's borders. I mean, it makes every possible sense for them to have a pipeline. But uh, but amazingly enough, they don't have one yet. So this deal would be um, sending, I believe, I can't remember off the top of my head, I believe it's something like 10, cube, 10 million cubic uh, meters of gas a year by 2018 and expanding from there. Um, and it would be a huge, huge thing because not only from the economic perspective, obviously, Russia gets a new market and China gets uh, uh, gas uh, supplies, but also from the, the economic perspective of this, because, of course, it would almost certainly be done in local currency rather than, than through the U.S. dollar. And uh, that would be another chip, chipping away of the U.S. dollar currency. And it also represents Russia turning away from Europe towards Asia, which they're already doing in terms of uh, uh, they're, they're, they've just written off $10 billion of loans that North Korea owes them in order to secure a, a pipeline transit to South Korea. They've also just bought Kyrgyz gas from the Kyrgyzstani government for $1, um, basically because it's mm. a, a ridiculous institution that needs to be completely reformed. So they're going to pump in millions of dollars to reform it and modernize it so they're they're definitely investing right now heavily in in their asian connections and trying to build that up and turning away from europe and this could be very significant because again this really does represent the formation of some sort of block a resistance block to nato hmm. well how's that going to play into uh the demise of the dollar if that happens if, if china and you know russia are able to trade you know, directly across their border for oil, you know, doesn't it, wouldn't it make sense that they would just immediately walk away from the dollar? Uh, well, not immediately, but again, it's, I, I think it's death of a thousand paper cuts when it comes to the dollar. And uh, this would also affect the euro, of course, which would be the, uh, the currency of choice for the, uh, the European transactions of Gazprom. So um, again, uh, it's all part, it's all part and parcel of this process. And as I wrote in a recent uh, editorial in the last couple of weeks, talking about this great decoupling that's going on, I mean, what we're seeing is the creation of this this other system that involves China and Russia and, and their trading partners that is being created now so, so of necessity, really, because they're, they've been cornered by these sanctions and these other uh, military maneuvers that are going on to trading with each other. And why on earth would they trade with each other in dollars um, except to prop right. up a system that they are heavily invested in? I mean, certainly the, f the failure of the U.S. dollar as a global reserve currency will hurt China and other countries as well because they do hold a lot of U.S. debt. But at a certain point, the calculus becomes, well, you've got to take the hit in order to, you know, thrive in the, in the long run. And I think we're, we're getting closer and closer to that with each passing year. And something like this gas deal will just be another nail in that coffin of the U.S. dollar as the global reserve. Hmm. Well, I got to change gears here real quick too, James, because if I don't ask you this, I'm going to get some emails about it. But what do you know about what is going on in China right now with Bitcoin? Like, what do we actually know, if anything? That's a good question. I think I've only heard what you've heard, basically. The, uh, the, the, the rumors and the speculation about what the PBOC, the, the People's Bank of China, is doing now in terms of their crackdown, which I believe just a, a week or two ago they came out to deny that they were looking at reforming anything, and now the latest rumor is that they're basically going to clamp down on exchanges completely, as I believe you were talking about last year, uh, last hour. Mm -hmm. so, uh, so I don't really know anything more than that than, on that than you do, but I would say that even if it is true... And and even if BTC ends up that you can't actually buy or sell Bitcoin with Yuan, Bitcoin is, is surprising, I think, in its longevity because it is an idea that really can't and won't die until the user base abandons it. Um, if there are motivated people who actually want to use this 
Bitcoin currency, they will find ways of doing it. You can transact with people directly, and there's no central bank in the world that can stop you from doing that. Um, if you just make a deal with someone, you know, send me a Bitcoin, I'll give you this paper money. There's nothing in the world that can come between you on that. So it, it it's not going to die out and t- until the user base basically abandons it. And uh, there's already a very significant, very motivated, very passionate Bitcoin user base that makes it, I think, unlikely that it's going to be eradicated completely. Um, will it, I, it? Certainly, if the governments continue with these pressure points, like the IRS just recently con- concluded that you have to pay capital gains tax on Bitcoin transactions and, and these types of things. I mean, if this continues... I think we could see the, uh, the the sort of stopping of the big Bitcoin revolution from from spreading into the mainstream, but there will still always be that that hardcore motivated user base that are, that is passionate about it. And in fact, I just talked in, in Tokyo here in Japan to Roger Veer, who's uh, known as Bitcoin Jesus for his uh, proselytization of Bitcoin, and we had a very interesting conversation on that. That's going to be being released on uh, my website tomorrow, so you can look forward to that uh, as we talk. A little bit more about why why bitcoin is so revolutionary and why it's important for people to to at least um support the idea of it if even if you're not in, in, in necessarily invested in it yourself yeah i agree with that i think the cryptocurrency thing is going to be around for a good long while uh but i don't know how long bitcoin is going to be around i want to switch gears to fukushima because it seems like we always wait until the end to talk about what's going on out there when you've got so much expertise so why don't you Delve in, tell us what we know now, you know, what what have we learned in the last month that we didn't know before, that kind of thing. Well, the latest up on FukushimaUpdate.com is that uh, the residents of Kawauchi, which is uh, within that 20-kilometer hot zone around the nuclear power plant, have just been okayed for overnight stays in that hot zone. So... um, I believe 40 residents from 18 households have applied to return to their homes. And this is out of 134 households and 276 residents in total. So, uh, so that's kind of the latest with regards to the, to the evacuation area in the immediate vicinity of the plant. And we also had an interesting story uh, last week from a, uh, the, the, the actual boss of the Fukushima number one power plant who said that the, uh, Basically, the water situation there is out of control by saying that basically they, they don't have control over over the water that's being pumped in there and what's coming out and and storing it all. Um, they just don't have the, the capacity to store all of this radioactive water that's going through the plant, etc. So nothing new there, but it's interesting to see the, uh, the actual boss of the plant coming out and admitting that in the open. Um, I think going from here, one of the big issues that's going to be really coming to the forefront this summer is the nuclear reactor restart issue. Uh, the Japanese government here has just released a new en- basic energy policy that includes nuclear energy and includes the restarting of the nuclear reactors. They have taken all, all of the nuclear reactors in the country, all 54 of them offline in the wake of Fukushima, uh, the Fukushima accident. And they are now starting to talk about restarting them after having revised the the safety guidelines and what have you. And uh, that's going to be starting as early as this summer, although there are signs already that uh, the anti-nuclear movement here has has postponed that and delayed it a little bit. But I just talked to Eileen Miyoko-Smith of Green Action Japan about that issue specifically, and I'm, I'm going to have a video report coming out on that in the coming weeks because I, I think that's going to be sort of the next major step here for uh, the, the anti-nuclear movement in Japan. I'd like to talk about gold because I want to know if you think there's going to be any change in that. And have you heard about a new uh, true de facto gold currency that is out? 
a new true de facto gold currency. I haven't heard of that. Yeah. No, but um, okay. <laughs> that that sounds very important. So if you have you know information on that, please let me know. Um, as okay. for where I think gold is going, I really don't see uh, anything happening to it while we're in this state of tension in Ukraine. I think that the state of tension is maintaining uh, things at a certain level right now, and we've seen it hovering around that thirteen hundred dollar mark for for a good few weeks now. So uh, I I don't see that budging until there is some sort of major move in in the Ukraine crisis. And at that point, I would expect, just as a flight to safety maneuver, the price of gold to, to be going up um, if and when, you know, things start to heat up there. If and when, yes, yes. I want to take one phone call. Our phone lines are down, except for we can take one phone call now at 855-995-6923. Y'all see who can get in. 855-995-6923. <laughs> Back to Power Hour. Thank you for joining us. 54 minutes after the hour, we're talking to James Corbett, CorbettReport.com, C-O-R-B-E-T-T, Report.com. We know who's on redial. Let's go to Don in Missouri. You were the fastest one, Don. Welcome to the Power Hour today. What's a question for uh, James Corbett? Oh, good morning. Uh, yes, uh, it seems to me that there's turning points in history, and one of the greatest ones was when the Soviet Union was... Uh, defeated, more or less, and uh, uh, at that time, we had the West had an opportunity, I think, to embrace the Russian people as part of the world community, and uh, we should have uh, dissolved NATO at that point, possibly, or at least uh, allowed the Russians to join the NATO, but instead of doing that and having peace in the world, we chose to uh, frame them as continuing as an enemy, and uh, I think we lost a great opportunity at that point. Well, but you're thinking, I think, and speaking out of too much common sense of to what, as, as to what should have happened. I, I agree with you on that. We missed a point there for sure. Or was that by design? Uh, your response, James? Well, I, I, I certainly do agree with the sentiment, but uh, I, I think that uh, the story of what happened in the wake of the, the fall of the Soviet Union is still one that's not really well understood. But when people look into the way that the the, the absolute plunder of the Russian economy took place on all sides by the, the Russian oligarchs, as well as by the, the, the international financial community and the billions and billions and billions and billions and billions that were that were sent in as aid through IMF loans, etc., and then taken out the back door in, in basically the same transaction out to un, un, unmarked. Swiss bank accounts. I mean, just the the absolute plunder that went on is really atrocious. And then the the absolute horrific uh, effects on the Russian people is still something that's that's not really understood by people who didn't live through it. And uh, and there's just uh, just an untold amount of human suffering went on in Russia in the wake of that that didn't need to happen. And I think that absolutely it it certainly could have been a turning point in history. And unfortunately, the status quo went with the status quo. And maybe that's not surprising but it's nonetheless lamentable. All right. Thank you. Do you you have another question? Well, I got a comment about current happenings. It just seems like that's, uh, uh, you know, we frame uh, dictatorships and things, you know, when their countries are having uh, difficult problems, uh, they always stir up thinking that uh, some of the reasons for current uh, problems could be to get our mind off our economy and... uh, if we have a war effort, that would give the government uh, reasons to uh, uh, use more control of the people. 
Well, absolutely. That's a way we boost our economy because we make money from two things in this country, disease, illness, that we call health care, and then, uh, you know, illegal weapons of sales. And, of course, that goes into the drugs also. Your comment on that, James? Well, unfortunately, I have to agree completely. It's uh, it's always good for business to, to drum up a boogeyman, and that's exactly what they do. So they, they only have a couple of boogeymen up their sleeves, and one of them is the big bad Russian bear, and uh, that's the one that's appearing on the scene right now. Mm-hmm. It is. It is. And, you know, I was saying a while ago, we've gone up, you know, we've post- postured against Syria, Somalia, Pakistan, Afghanistan, Iraq, and Iran, um, now Russia. But how many other countries have gone up against that many countries? I mean, how many other countries are out there trying to imperialize the way the United States is? Nobody. When are we going to realize? I mean, how do you think we're looked at by other countries? In fact, how does Japan look at the United States? Are we their big brother? For a long time, for for a couple of generations, I think the uh, Japanese people have been completely um, on board with America, and and except for, of course, those pockets of resistance around the military bases where where soldiers tend to go out and you know run over little children or, or rape women and that type of thing, and that you know there's obviously huge protests that go on in that area. But for by and large, I think the Japanese people have been very much supporters of the American military project, and that's going to come to a head as I think Japan starts to militarize. You know whether they can count on that American military umbrella absolutely and also it makes me wonder after we bombed them into oblivion too you know then they come and support us hey thank you very much for joining us on the power hour today james corbett we appreciate you so very much i appreciate it looking forward to next time you have a blessed day corbettreport.com